Good afternoon and thank you to Emily for giving me the opportunity to present my work today. So I'm going to talk about uh, care and ask if care is an equity issue in higher education. Um, and the work I'm going to be presenting today is part of three broad questions I've been trying to answer over the years, which are why are care and carers invisible and misrecognized in higher education policy and research circles? How do academics or caregivers navigate carefree academic cultures? But as well, how do national institutional cultures, policies and practices play out in the experiences of carers? So before I turn to the research, I would like to give you a little bit of uh, background um, information, which I'm, I'm sure for most of it you would be aware of these, um, these issues. I mean, an, an important point is that uh, university spaces now accommodate uh, a diverse population, including in relation to um, caring responsibilities. Um, and we also know from a research conducted by Carers UK that the number of people with care people in work with caring responsibilities is also now uh, on the rise and quite significant. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, specific data. Well, let me know if you have specific data on carers in academia. Um, but there, are, there, there is uh, increasing evidence that this also applies to the HE uh, sector. And at the same time, what we see is uh, the, the, the persistence, despite this um, changing population, the persistence of the association between academic excellence and what some people have called for short the beige le boy, which is basically a white middle class male and most relevantly to, to this event, an encumbered or carefree scholar. So think, for example, of, of who get uh, Nobel Prizes, who get to give keynotes to big conferences, who get to be on the editorial boards of the uh, most important journals in your field. Another important aspect of uh, the context against which, uh, against which um, carers, academic carers, li live their life is um, the fact that academic identities have historically uh, been uh, constructed through a denial of emotions of domestic and physical and bodily matters, which tend to be either ignored in academia, we're, we're doing as if they didn't exist, or that tends to be belittled. Um, and I'm looking here to the work of Sarah Ahmed, uh, Rosie Bredotti, and of course, um, Carol Leifrud and Valerie Hay. And in particular, what we're seeing there is a kind of ongoing physical and normative dissociation between academia and care, which are constantly constructed as ex exclusive categories. And this goes back, I would like to argue, a long way. There's nothing new about it. So if you think, for example, of uh, René Descartes' work in the 17th century, cogito ergo sum, I think first I am. So what defines me is my mind, is my intellectual abilities, not my body. Um, so And this, I think, is still very much ingrained in, in our um, contemporary uh, academic cultures. But at the same time, I would like to argue that uh, as I'm sure you know, this is not the 17th century academia. Things have changed. Obviously, you know, there's lots of women here, so the, 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 works are, the workforce has feminized and so have the student population. But as well, what we see is, um, and that's relatively recent on the scale of, uh, of the history of higher education, is the emergence of two new discourses, one being the managerial university and the other being intensive parenting. Um, so, um, COSA has coined the term of greedy institutions, and the point I'm trying to make there is that carers are faced with the uh, um, demands, the many demands of these two greedy institutions. On one side, there is the university that is asking more and more of their time, where you're supposed to be constantly available and 
dedicated to your work as if you were carefree, as if there was nothing there outside of the university. Um, and at the same time, there is intensive parenting, and especially intensive mothering, where you're supposed to invest constantly in your children and to help them to develop their human capitals. So as you can see there, these are both in two institutions which are demanding full availability and full loyalty. But as carers, we are facing some huge tensions in trying to accommodate these demands. Um, and one other thing I have argued in particular is that for people with significant caring responsibilities, you are actually, you can't win because you're competing against yourself, but a better version of yourself, a carefree version of yourself. You should be at a certain, you know, you should have a certain number of publications at a certain age or if you're in a certain role, but because you have caring responsibility, you're not there yet. So you, you have this feeling of not being good enough. But at the same time, you're also care, you're also competing against carefree others, ever people who don't have any caring responsibilities or people who are able to delegate these caring responsibilities to third parts, for example, a spouse. Considering the carefree nature of higher education, it may be um, unsurprising that there is a limited body of work on care and carers in academia. Although I, I, I hasten to add that there is a significant scholarship on academic parents, especially on mothers who are academics, thinking of the work of um, Miriam David, for example, or Aaron Radon and many others. There is also, interestingly, a, a relatively a recent but growing scholarship on student parents, for example, the work of Rachel Brooks or, or Jeline Hook. Um, but something hasn't changed. It's um, the dearth of research on other groups of carers. So, for example, parents who have children with special needs or with disabilities, these are not the parenting voices we hear usually in research, or people who are caring <coughs> for for other, uh, other um, so-called carers, for example, um, an elderly parent or somebody who has a chronic illness. So for, for more than five years now, I've been uh, working first on student parents, and that's, um, that's interesting because there's a sort of blurring between the personal and the professional in, in that field, I find. And um, that interest was born out of the fact that I was myself a student parent. Um, and I, I found all this is interesting because I was a full-time academic, I was a PhD student, so I was a parent. And there was lots of research on moms trying to do academic work, but there was no research on being a student and a parent. Um, so I started um, approaching the relationship between academia and care for this angle. And then more recently, uh, I was very lucky to get a grant from the uh, Leadership Foundation for Higher Education to uh, extend this work to academics but not just to academic parents, but to academics with a range of caring responsibilities, uh, which has hardly been researched at all. Um, so the work has been conducted with Murray Robertson, who was a PhD student and who was also my uh, uh, research assistant on the project. Um, so what we've done, because it was a small project, uh, we decided to do three university case studies. And in each university, we did some analysis of the different policies. We did some interviews with academic carers and we also did some interviews with what we call policy staff, which are actually HR staff or people in equality and diversity role. Um, and what I want to stress is this, um, the approach we, we adopted is very much exploratory. That was the first time I was talking to people with a range of caring responsibilities, so I was just really curious about what they wanted to share with us. So there was a semi-structured interview, but the questions were very open. Although I'm glad to say mobility was a key theme and also a key concern for participants. So um, I'm looking forward to your, to your finding, to hear about your findings in the project. 
Um, so how did I kind of try to conceptualize um, this relationship between care, carers and academia? Well, the first thing is I'm drawn on, this, uh, on an understanding, sorry, of, of a production of inequalities and identities um, as being multilevel. So the idea that you know uh, your your life is is framed by the national cultures, the institutional cultures, but also by your direct environment. Who's your line manager? Who's your partner? What do they do? How available are they? How rich are you? Things like that. Um, and and to reflect this kind of multilevel understanding of the production of inequalities and identities in relation to care, I've turned I've I've kind of tweaked the the concept developed by Irene Connell and before her by Jean Matthews of gender order, gender regime, and gender practices, and instead, I, not instead, I actually uh, try to think of the care order, the care regime, the care practices, and, and how they impact on people's uh, personal lives. So it's not in place of the concept of gender order regime practices, but it's more understood in intersection. So I approach people as carers, but I also approach them as having uh, gendered race and class identities. And I'm also um, using um, um, the theoretical framework of Kathleen Lynch in relation to a conceptualization of inequalities. And Kathleen Lynch herself, as you probably know, draws on the work of Nancy Fraser, where she's trying to articulate the different dimensions of inequalities, cultural, social, political, economical, etc. Uh, but Kathleen Lynch is adding to it the notion of affective equality. Who is giving care, love, solidarity, and who is receiving it? Um, and I find this approach to be really fruitful. So looking at the data I have collected over the years, so recently this project on academic carers, but um, before that, my research, which was a bigger project on student parents, there are three key themes which have emerged from the data, which I'm gonna look at very briefly in turn. Uh, the first is the issue of the visibility or invisibilization of care and carers. The second one is their misrecognition or recognition. And the third one is the possibility or impossibility of having more inclusive uh, academic spaces. So this is point number one. <laughs> the first thing which is very striking uh, when you look at the spaces of uh, academia is the fact uh, that care is very m and carers is uh, most of the time invisible. And that's a statement that applies to academic circles, academic text, media text, and policy text. Uh, so for example, if you look at the national policy text about higher education, whether they refer to students or to staff, at best we do passing by reference to caring responsibilities. It's not usually their focus. Um, to my knowledge, but please correct me if I'm wrong, there is no requirement to collect data based on family or care circumstances in academia. The NUS has done some very precious work on student parents and more recently on student carers. And the UCU has developed a questionnaire um, that they encourage institutions to use to identify who are carers and what are their needs. But I haven't found any evidence that this questionnaire had been used by institutions. So again, it'd be good to hear from you if, if you've used it. And at institutional level, at best, there is an acknowledgement of carers in specific spaces. So, for example, think of a university website uh, where the staff and students are presented as really relatively carefree and careless, but you may have a specific page about the nursery. Yeah? Um, but yet, what's really interesting is um, that in crisis moments, um, crisis moments can result in carers becoming hyper-visible. So they're invisible when everything, when they're dealing with things and it works kind of fine, 
But for example, say your childcare arrangements break down, where suddenly you walk late in a meeting or you walk late in a lecture, and that's when you become very visible. So there's this risk that the visibility uh, brings uh, misrecognition. So what I'm saying there is that maybe making care and carers visible is not sufficient. We also need to get sure that care is not seen as a disturbance to what we do and is valued. How am I doing with time? Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sorry. It's me getting stressed and starting to agree. Like, you've planned on the 15 minutes. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I'm going to give you a few examples um, taken from the interviews about the issues that uh, carers struggle with and uh, especially issues in relation to misrecognition. There were many and it was very difficult to choose. Um, so, so this one this is Gemma and she's an academic in one of the free case study institutions and um, I'm going to let you read that. <laughs> so you know that's the kind of typical quote you get about mothers who are academics so there's a lot there, research taking a back seat, um, carriers are ring down for a while, however life cycle clashes with a paid work cycle. Uh, there's also a, a, a kind of theme around uh, being in or being an insider or an outsider and how, you know, how can you um, try not to be an outsider in this exclusive club and how, because she's a carer, a kind of professional identity is compromised by a, a, a caring status. So I find it quite interesting. And there's a lot as well in this quote I found about how she kind of internalized the wider social structures in very um, individual terms that, you know, she feels like she's a failure. Why, when you think about it, there was very little she could do about it. So, and this is a completely different quote. This is from somebody who is a carer to their elderly father, and this is one of the voices we usually don't hear um, in research about care. But, you know, care plays out on a different level there. There's the huge element of unpredictability where she could have a phone call that, you know, telling her dad has fell over or maybe die at any time. So, there's a different uh, type of emotion associated with being a carer there. And because you have assumed you, you come here because you're interested to hear about academic mobilities, I also wanted to tease out some of the, of the data, not too much because obviously Emily is going to talk about it. Um, but as I said, these academic mobilities, um, understood in a very broad way, uh, were not something we directly um, asked people about, but that's something that came up quite strongly um, and was often seen as a problem for, for carers. Um, so, um, interviewees talk about mobilities in, in as being very polymorphous. So, for example, some talk about um, going on a very, attending a two-hour seminar. Others talk to, about going to a long conference. Uh, it could be an, a, no, a local event or an international event. Um, and in some subjects, there are also issues with longer-term mobilities. For example, the fact that to get a permanent position, you need to go from postdoc into postdoc and postdoc again and maybe after a while you would get this permanent position and that's a huge problem because um, that starts conflicting with other uh, uh, requirement, especially as many academics are partnered with other academics. Um, what we also found that there were some uh, very varied expectations in terms of academic mobilities across subjects. I mean the postdoc is a good example if you study so-called hard science you're expected to do a few postdocs but in education or social sciences, humanities, there isn't always that expectation. However, and that applies to all subjects, as argued by Terry Kim, mobility has become an important criterion for evaluating academic careers. 
So not playing the game of being a mobile global subject is actually, you know, um, likely to impact on your camera development. And that's what we found is that meeting the requirements of a global mobile academic worker was uh, at best a challenge um, and at worst out of reach for some carriers. So for example, thinking of people who are single parents, how can you, if there is no other adults you can rely on, how can you actually go at the other end of the world to, uh, to attend a conference or how can you accept a visiting a professorship somewhere in a different country? Um, so this is a quote that does include some reference to um, several types of mobilities, so I'll let you read it. Okay, so just to give you a bit of background on this um, interview, the cat is in a same-sex relationship and her partner's got a chronic illness, a debilitating illness. Um, and um, she, I mean, a lot of her, of her interview was how, about how she wasn't um, recognized as a carer because she wasn't a parent, but she wasn't even recognized as a main breadwinner because she wasn't a man and she wasn't, uh, she didn't have a, a standard family at home. Um, so it's about how these, um, these carers were not fitting the ideal of a bachelor boy or actually um, struggling to see their, um, their status recognized. When I started the research, I thought, oh, this is about the equality issues that the carers are facing compared with the so-called non-carers. But the more I dig into that and the more I dig into um, about this, the more I thought, well, this is actually as well about um, inequalities between carers, depending on who you are and depending on the, on the nature of your caring responsibilities. And that's why I thought, I found it quite interesting to put together my research on students and on staff as well, because you, you can, it gives you a comparative element there. Uh, and in particular, it was interesting to see that there is a much greater level of support available for academics compared with students. So all those students, in, to some extent, will be protected by the Equality Law 2010. Caring is not one of the grounds um, identified as uh, the basis for discrimination. And also, the employees are much more protected by um, the legal and and, and contractual framework within which they work. And as I said before, uh, all academics are not equal, <laughs> all carers are not equal. There, uh, those not fitting the archetype of a bachelor boy are more likely to experience a sense of struggle and discrimination in a higher education culture, which is very much carefree, masculinist, and heteronormative. So if you're a man and you're, you have a female spouse and, and children, you, it may actually not be a problem. There is actually evidence showing that male breadwinner having children is having a positive impact on your career okay so it's not always a negative but if you are i don't know in a sex same-sex relationship if you're single if your caring responsibilities are for somebody who's elderly you may really struggle and you may get very little support and what we also found is um the level of um of struggles does vary according to the position uh, so as you would expect, at the top, it's very carefree, and as one academic said, it's glossed over. But at the same time, it's not like a nice progressive correlation. You're at the bottom of the hierarchy, and it's very care-friendly, and at the top, it's no, not care-friendly at all. It's actually very close. It, it, it does closely depends um, on the nature of your position. So I'll give you an example about it. It's a woman who was a professor, and then she became, I think it was a head of department, or some kind of manager, you 
um, or head of subject, manager responsibility. And her professorship was actually, she had a lot of control on her time. But the moment she got a leadership management position, it was much more difficult because she was expected to be present all the time in the university. So it's very much related to the position. Um, what we also find is, um, so as I said before, it really depends on what your needs are. Um, parental needs tend to be much more visible, much more recognized, but also much more protected and supported by the law and by uh, institutions. And overcaring responsibilities tend to be invisibilized, marginalized, but also what we noted is those people with the so-called overcaring responsibilities tended to um, develop their own individualized solutions. And often they didn't even disclose their caring responsibilities uh, in the workplace. They just dealt with that on their own. Um, there were also some interesting findings relating to people who had been carers, but then the person died, or per people who had experienced miscarriage or stillbirth or all these things. And these were very traumatic um, episodes of life, but they were usually not supported by, by institutions. So clearly an equity issue, care is an equity issue, I like to argue, both because of, uh, of the treatment of carers, but also because of the differential treatments of different types of carers. And so moving on to my last section, the impossibility of, of five minutes, so that's yeah, that's perfect, of, or possibility of more inclusive academic spaces. So when drawing on this work, but also on the previous one where we actually did uh, 10 university case studies, so altogether I've got 13 university case studies, which give me you know, uh, some idea of, uh, of the different approaches to, to cares in academia. What we found is uh, three different approaches. The first one is the so-called universal or care-blind approach, where usually there's very little intervention, um, and that's justified by the fact that everybody should be treated the same, Expected, accepted as geared towards the carefree scholar. So the, the default academic you have in mind is actually somebody who's carefree. Um, and then you've got another approach, which is a more, more targeted approach, where there is some specific provision made available for carers. So the positive there, it does bring visibility and it does bring support. But at the same time, <coughs> um, it does challenge the structural inequalities embedded in academic cultures, and it tends to reproduce the deficit view of carers as special, needy, or even costly, which can be a problem in, you know, in, in, in difficult financial times. And finally, um, what we found is um, some attempt to mainstreaming in the in, you know, in the same sense that, for example, the European Commission has been pushing uh, gender mainstreaming. Some universities have had people in place trying to put gender mainstreaming, but as well care mainstreaming, where they're trying to review their policies and look at how they have a differential impact on people depending on whether they are carers or not. Um, so in that model, uh, students and staff are constructed as potential caregivers. Um, referring here to uh, Nancy Fraser's universal caregiver model, rather than assuming that everybody is carefree. Okay. Uh, however, it is not without problem. There are challenges associated with care mainstreaming. Um, you know, it needs to be well resourced. It also needs to be deeply ingrained in institu institutional cultures. And uh, maybe to finish, um, another interesting finding was that 
we, we find these three approaches, but what we find as well is that there isn't one single approach by institution. You can't put institution neatly in, in you can't put them in neat little cases. Um, institutions are very complex and they are increasingly differentiated. And we find that maybe the, the biggest influence wasn't where you were, it was more like in which department you work, and even more importantly, who's your line manager? So what you have is, I, I wouldn't want to give you the imp impression that one approach equals one university. It's much more complicated than that. So I thought maybe I need to rethink about the way I was thinking before of policies, where I thought of policies as arborescence. You know, it's top-down or bottom-up, <laughs> but in any case, it's something vertical. Uh, and there's a central level, they're going to say, oh, let's have a nice, cable-friendly policy, and everybody at every level will implement it. It doesn't work like this. So I'd like to argue that we need to look at policies as something which is rhizomatic, drawing on the work of Gilles Deleuze and Felix Cattari. Um, that is that there is a chronology and causality. So trying to think of policies as nomadic systems of growth and propagation rather than something which is either top down or bottom up. Um, Okay, and that's it for me. Just to say, the, as Emilio already kindly uh, said, the, the research report is in production. Um, and what we're going to do now is we're going to have a launch sometimes in the new academic year. And we're also trying to um, develop some workshops with institutions. So we're trying to have four or five workshops across the UK uh, for a mixed audience of practitioners and academics. So if you are interested, please be in touch. Thank you.